0: Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork.
1: And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. As we move into the holiday season, start thinking about what wines you want to order and get on WineAccess.com slash WFNP. Have them shipped right to your door. Check it out today and listen in the middle of the show for more details. WineAccess.com slash WFMP. Today, I have my very close friend, my web guru, and the best digital marketer in the wine business. Polly Hammond is very different in the world of wine. She's actually a normal person who has done many different things in her life. And although she's in the wine industry, she and I are such good friends because we very rarely talk about wine. We're both real people and real friends. Polly is the founder and CEO of Five Forests, where she works with wineries around the world to help them understand the digital world. She helps them better understand how to reach us and bridge the gap between the wine industry and the people it's supposed to serve. And if you love WineForNormalPeople.com, the newly launched site, it's Polly's work. And if you need help with a company website, you have to go to fiveforests.com. She doesn't just do wine stuff. She is also a podcaster herself, she is on her third podcast interview series. She's launching head training this month to help educate winery owners and others in the wine business on how to do normal people marketing, really. It's a weekly YouTube series. It's focusing on in-depth topics. There'll be some interviews. It's going to be awesome. Everything Polly does is of the highest quality. She is amazing. I know you guys are going to love her. Polly, welcome to the show.
1: I just want to get that made into a t-shirt with like a whole wall of text on it so that i can walk around with that every day i'm gonna wear that to every conference and be like this is what elizabeth says about me
0: i can do that for you yeah you know yeah, I, think, I can do I that, that for you it is pretty amazing that haven't you told people before that we're real friends like not wine friends yeah it, it's
1: a funny thing because they're like oh do you know Elizabeth a i'm like yeah elizabeth's actually one of my best friends and they're like oh do you know her from wine and i'm like well Not really. Like we don't really talk about wine that much. If we do talk about wine, it's generally talking about some kind of disassociation between something that's going on in the wine world and something that you and I and the cohort kind of like us understands about wine. But no, mostly it's us talking about my dog and our families and the husbands. So there are some real friendships in the wine world.
0: I think that makes it all the better that we are here to talk about this stuff because one of the major things that I think we have in common is we both had a life before wine. Can you talk about your life before wine? Because you've done so many interesting things. I
1: wish I'd done more interesting things.
0: No, you've done so much interesting stuff and I think that all of the people that I really like in wine did not start out in the wine business. They started doing something completely different and then sort of found their way in. Yeah, that's true. In my case
1: probably the formative parts of the identity that happened before wine were that I was an expat and I was self-employed. And I was self-employed as an expat where I had to kind of set aside everything that I thought I knew. And I had to learn how to build these businesses in a culture that was completely foreign to my own. Which was New Zealand. Which, which was New Zealand. So I moved from Hollywood, California <laughs> to this tiny, tiny little suburb in New Zealand where, you know, I had people asking me, I had had two USC degrees and I had people asking me if I had graduated from high school. My husband and I, we were young and we were young in that desperate way. We didn't go over with millions of dollars. like We went over as a 23, 24 year old couple who had to make a living. And also I'm a geek. One of the things about Gen X is that we're the generation that we saw all of these things coming about. We were the first people sitting there using, aol with the fabulous you know soundtrack to getting mail and and learning that suddenly we could get everything that we read online and oh my god napster right napster was just the most glorious thing pre
0: pre pre-streaming five hours to download a song well it
1: did but we were were (laughs) more patient about the internet Also, New Zealand, books were so expensive at the time. It was impossible to go out and buy books. I remember being in California and you'd toddle off on the weekends and you'd buy bags full of books. And I went to New Zealand and a paperback that would have cost three bucks would cost $20 in New Zealand. So all I had was the internet. It made me use the platform all the time, use the channels all the time. But I also had to really learn What worked to build businesses? What businesses did you do? Well, I did the business of marriage and child raising. Not going to discount that one. No, it yeah. is of the hardest businesses
0: that you can be in.
1: Yeah. So my husband worked in complimentary healthcare and I helped him build that business at the same time as we were raising children. And that was all of the customer facing comms. I'd had an unofficial background in design. So I'd used all the design skills. I'd had a more formal background in conflict mediation and negotiation. I helped him build that business until the kids were getting older and I was like you know what I need something to keep me busy and this is so weird I launched an online yarn store I importing- love that I know and I'm living in New Zealand where it's like I, I yarn it. and wool galore and I'm importing all of these big international brands. I ran it from the house. I built it. And weirdly enough, I sold it. And if you know anything about online stores, like online stores, successful online stores, they're not something that really sells. And then I said, okay, well, looking the kids by this point are pretty self-sufficient. And I was like, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? We'd had this personal background in the wine industry that we would pretty much walked away from when we left California, but we'd had all of these friends who were winemakers or vineyard managers or m- liquor store owners. And they would come to my house and I'd sit around on a Sunday night drinking good wine, eating a nice meal, and trying to explain to them how to use digital to build their business. Until the day finally came that I was like, oh, well, let's see. If that works, I'll do that. And this was meh, ten years ago, definitely pre-pandemic. And I had had a hope that, well, maybe it would be a bit of retirement money, and maybe it would pay for me to take the family on holiday once a year or like it. It didn't really start out in my head. I think where it is now. And so I started Phyforest thinking, well, maybe someone in wine will actually pay me to advise him about how digital works. So then you started getting clients. I started getting clients. And I'm going to be very honest and say that I got really, really lucky in finding Mike, who's now my business partner, because Mike is the developer. He's the head of kind of all things tech and engineering. I found him because one of the first projects I had was well beyond the scope of work of what I knew how to do. And I had worked with him kind of on an ad hoc basis on some projects. I was consulting to him on some of his projects, which which weren't mine. And we did this for long enough until the day finally came that we're like, you know what, let's just make this a partnership. But I I would certainly be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that much of the success of Five Forest has been that Mike, I say this without any kind of hesitation, is the most talented developer working in wine right now. He will never listen to podcasts, but he, you know, I'll tell him he just (laughs) got a big old shout out.
0: Please do. As you started to move into wine, what was the hardest thing that you found about working with wineries? What do you think? Think that they just don't get about us as wine drinkers. I asked because most of the people listening to this were normal wine drinkers, and it often feels like we are having these experiences with wineries over and over and over again and unless they're really small a lot of times the really small operations are so close to us that they understand us a lot of times even they they just don't get it they don't know that wine isn't the only thing in our lives that maybe there's other things it's not the number one thing that we're always thinking about but they are so obsessed with it the way that they're pitching it is so odd What? your take on it? The
1: earliest things that kind of got me out into the world and that eventually led to the podcast is that I had this enormous push toward understanding your customers. Because not coming from wine, that was what I noticed, is that there was a lot of what I would describe as, you know, buy my shit, buy my shit, buy my shit, like this constant talking at people. And yet, if you've got a tasting room or a cellar door, we are all the time talking with people. But somehow, the brands just couldn't understand how you translate this experience of when we sit down and talk to our people, no matter how big or small we are, that's what happens in most good cellar doors and tasting rooms. How do you translate that now into all of these channels that make us global, social media, e-commerce, interviews, other people's podcasts, webinars, whatever it might be. And that was my big focus from day one. So I came from Hollywood. And I've always said that wine is probably the only business that I've ever worked with that is close to Hollywood because there's this romantical view that wine is just going to be, I'm going to be traveling and I'm going to get eaten drink and it's going to be so exciting. And so people go into wine and this isn't everyone. I certainly don't want to, to paint everyone with this brush, but there are a lot of people who go into wine without understanding how much work wine is or maybe they're cashed up and they don't need to actually sell a lot of wine so what they want to do is they want to share with you the thing that they love about wine which is the cinematic drone shots (laughs) and the hands holding grapes (laughs) and the soil oh my god the soil they want to talk about the soil Instead of what does it taste like? Are you going (laughs) to like it? What's the experience of coming to meet us? Are we your kind of people? What tone do we use? Are we highfalutin and elitist? Are we everyday? What is our position? Something about our industry lends itself toward many founders who pan or choose to really just not think that much about what role our product has in someone's life. Like I say to people all the time, think about use cases. When I had my second date with my husband, first date was a flying date. Second date, I know. Second date, I went to the local fancy grocery store that had a little wine cellar section. And I walked in and I was like, I know nothing about wine at all but my husband does and has a wine background and i don't want to look like a fool or not my husband, you know, this guy I'm going out. Yes, day. Right. And my budget is, I think it was $40. remember budget is $40. That's pretty good for a 23-year-old. I know, right? I was like, what do you have? And they sent me home with a Cambria Sangiovese that Keith loved. And when we went on our first away trip together, the first place that we stopped was Cambria. And then when we went on multiple trips and eventually our honeymoon, it was Cambria. And then it was going up to Paso and it was staying in a bnB I don't remember what any of those wines taste like. I've not had a Cambria Sangiovese in twenty years. I don't even know if I they can, still make it, do they? I don't know if they do they either. They really make um, Pinot and
0: Chard now.
1: But but the thing is that the wine served a purpose. I wanted to impress a boy, and it's so we forget to communicate the stories that place wine in the context of real everyday life.
0: That is true, but I do think there's a lot of navel gazing in the wine industry that other categories are a little bit less thinking that the entire world revolves around them.
1: Do you see that changing? especially in the past three
0: years? I, I don't see it changing. This is my next question. Isn't the wine industry this big echo chamber? You go to conferences because you have to for your business. but Yeah, I'm probably
1: more public in wine trade than you choose Yeah, I'm to not in the wine street.
0: trade at all. Right. I do not consider myself to be that. I am of the people. That's how right. I roll. And I get invited to these things, but you and I have discussed this before where I was invited to something and I said no. And I have yeah. been invited to places and I've said no. And the reason is... People are not receptive to our messages. We say these things, and we say them over and over again. There's a select group that's seeking you out. I have regular people seeking me out because they know I'm going to tell the truth. But who is in the industry that says the emperor has no clothes. So few of us. And when we actually get into a position where we're saying, look, this is what human beings who are on the other side of your product are going through on a daily basis. These are the things that they are seeing in the world. And you need to figure out how your." wine fits in with that instead of shoehorning things in, they are not always very receptive to that message because they are in this echo chamber of this is how we do things. This is how we've always done things. This is how things get done.
1: Yeah. Okay. So a few things there. I think that some brands would like to be able to do it, but Hmm. don't know how or they don't have the resources. I think that the resources are something we don't talk enough about in wine that Maybe the audience thinks that wine brands have a lot more people working for them than they do, but unless you're a big industrial brand, in many cases, you're under-resourced in every way. You don't have the time, money, or labor to actually do some of these things. So I think there are brands who want to do better but don't have the capacity. I think that there are some brands that are still run by leadership whose position is rapidly becoming obsolete. I mean, I I certainly see that in brands that come to us, that we're trying to give them the advice, we're trying to do the work for them. But at some point, you hit a brick wall where an older stakeholder, CEO, just not going to change. No interest. I think it has to do sometimes with who carries what roles in brands. What was the training? What was the background? Where did they come from? Because sometimes we end up with people in sales and marketing who don't actually have experience in sales and marketing, or they had experience in sales and they get moved into marketing. So it's some of that. And then I do think that there are the brands, although they are few and far between, who are just the big, nope we are what we are and you either like us or you don't like us. And the problem, so both the 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 pros and the cons of that, I can totally respect someone who does that if they've built in the margins to be able to support that. I can think about brands that are, and they're generally cult brands and they're very, very dogged in what they are. And frankly, five Forest is like that. Like I'm that way that we are what we are. And if you don't yeah. like us, and you are too. Right? I am the same way. Yes. You're the same way. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rip on those brands for being like that. But where you have a problem is that those brands, if they're not making money and they need to make money and they're not willing to change.
0: I think even though we are this certain way, I think ours comes from a place of integrity. We're not going to move from the position because we think we're doing the right thing. However, if the market starts to change, we want to adapt. Adapt, And I think that that's a little different. Not your principles, but the way that you do things sometimes has to change a little bit based on what is going on in the world. Some of those wine brands refuse regardless. I'm going to jump in on this.
1: I think that beyond just the echo chamber, what we have is we have a lack of transparency. Five Forest rides a line between tech and wine. In tech, in SaaS, you can go out and you can find case studies that have real numbers. We improved this statistic by 42% by enabling this particular thing. Okay. Wine doesn't want to communicate around money. They don't want to communicate about it internally. They don't want to communicate about it externally. And so what we have is we've got, whether it is intentional or not intentional, we've got brands that look like they're doing really well. And when you get into the numbers, they're not, but these brands that look like they're doing really well. And again, this is not like every brand that's doing well or every brand that's failing. We also have very modest brands that you had no idea that they're just rocking it, right? But you've got these brands that look like they're doing well. And so they're held up as this role model within how to do things but if we all copied it financial sustainability goes out the window so i think that i think that that's part of it is that without transparency and without honest conversations around money and this probably is true of any business then it's very hard collectively as an industry to make better decisions and lift the, the rising tide, lift all boats.
0: You're right about the transparency because I have friends in the industry who they have to raise their prices because they're really not making any money, even though their prices are already high. But they can't explain the cost structure or why it's so expensive. And then there's the other problem, which is that European wines are a lot cheaper. So then there's like, why can't everybody, you know, I mean, there's, but there's but a lot I of... Just- On the
1: other side of it, I will say I've got some clients who are well tapped into their customers. And the downside to that is that it can make evolution quite difficult because let's say that they need to raise their prices. But what they're saying is, but I love my people and I know my people can't afford.
0: Yeah, I kind of do that too, by the way. So what about different countries and different communication styles? I'm super curious about this. You work with brands in so many different countries. How do you adapt? And who's receptive to what kind of messages? Like how does the audience in the UK differ from Canada or from the US or New Zealand or Australia? Or is everybody sort of in the same boat with wine?
1: No, uh, it doesn't really have to do with wine. It has to do with culture. You know, was Native Californian, lived in New Zealand for twenty years. And now I live in Europe. Lots of experiences with different cultures. We always say, at least in the English-speaking world, that there's this continuum. You've got the UK on one side. Adjacent to the UK is New Zealand. Next in line is Australia, and then you've got the US. And where's Canada? Um,
0: Don't forget about my Canadian. I, I, I know. I know. I know. You no know, know what? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that one to my business partner because he is Canadian. So I'm not going to oh, yeah. judge touch as uh, Canadians. I think Canada's closer to the UK than the US, honestly. I think yeah, Australia, I, Australia and the US are more similar than, yeah, than other countries. Yeah, i probably countries.
1: put Canada somewhere between Oz and New Zealand. Yeah. It sits nicely there in the middle. What I noticed, like take New Zealand, which I know very, very well. So the New Zealand culture, we don't self-promote. I notice this with my own brand. It is just not a part of our culture. And if you self promote, man, people are going to give you the stink eye. Like it is, it is a completely bizarre thing to do. Whereas my Americans are perfectly happy to be like, We are the best you've ever met. We rock in everything we do. The hyperbolic nature of of how we will promote ourselves as American is just the opposite in every way. So what happens when you've got one of these brands that tries to go into the other country? My Kiwis who want to go into the U.S., one of the big conversations we have to have is, we're gonna have to change that tone of voice. And then in a world where we've got social media that spans the globe, well, how do you be modest and self-effacing and at the same time confident, self-promotional? And, ashy yeah. and self-promotional. I think that it is a real challenge. And if I know so many Americans who went into other cultures, be it Europe or Australasia, who they went in with that like real brash Americanness and oof completely crashed and burned because it was just so so culturally out of whack
0: so did it work in australia but not in new zealand would it work better in australia it it
1: tends to work more in oz
0: that i do think australians are pretty self-promotional frankly mm -hmm. they love to talk about their stories and things i'm not saying this in a a bad way but i think that no it's just regard it's a good match it's sad that they're not making headway in the u.s Let's talk about trends in the industry. You're so tuned into things. This is just spitballing. Some of it you're directly involved in and some of it you aren't. Let's talk about stuff like sustainability and packaging. This is something that people are super into right now. Everyone is talking about it. Boxes and bottles and PET and yada yada. It seems like a marketer's dream to not have to be constrained just to a label, and yet no one seems to want to take this leap. The
1: expert on this is a woman by the name of Rowena Ker-Lewis. She's the CEO and founder of Denomination, which is a branding and packaging agency originally out of Oz, but also in San Francisco and London. She... And her team have spearheaded sustainability, like interesting, just properly innovative changes to packaging in wine. Get her on, talk to her. If anybody wants, you know, any of the audience wants to hear some really interesting discussion about what can be done in packaging, she would be the person. Now, the problem that we're seeing with a lot of this alternative packaging, so if we're looking at things like cans, cardboard bottles, bottles, flat pack bottles, is that a lot of those companies, they're trying to get people to buy the machines that create or support the alternative packaging, which is often to the millions of dollars. So you think about what does it take to get the Capri Sun Bagnum, you know, filler? (laughs) What does it take? I love that. What does it take to get the cardboard? Packaging iron, and that is literally in the millions of dollars. Yes. Cans. So, for much of the world, the right to can wine is actually patented by this one little ownership in Australia, and they license it outside of Auslan. Oh America's not a big deal, but it makes it really, really hard for much of the world to have canned wine. And, like, my argument about that is that it's so antithetical to the spirit of alternative packaging and really how wine works. So there are some things where there are genuine business issues. The only way that those prices are gonna come down and make all of those things affordable is if the big brands with lots of money invest in them. It's the same as everything else, right? We've got to get the big players. And I know that you don't love industrial brands and that's fine, but my big take on industrial brands is that they have money to drive things. If we're looking at something like bottle weight, this is something that I push so hard for my brands to adopt lighter weight bottles. We've got major reviewers who have started noting the bottle weights in their reviews. Jancis Robinson puts
0: it in all of her stuff yes, now right Robinson. yeah we
1: get a bifurcation between our everyday wine and our fine our investment quality wine, right right right
0: We'll take a step away from the podcast to thank our sponsor this week, Wine Access Wine, A-C-C-E-S-S dot com slash W-F-M-P. Check out the page of my picks. Get 10% off your first order. Wine Access thinks of everything we're talking about in this show. What would be the things that we might like to see? Food pairings and serving temperatures and information about the grapes and the wine and the region. And then thinking about how we want our wines packed and how we want our wines shipped. And they think about the fact that maybe we don't want to ship just one bottle. Wine Access has free shipping on orders of $150 or more. You have up to 30 days to reach $150 shipping threshold. There's no pressure to buy one bottle and pay a lot of shipping for it. Go to wineaccess.com WFMP or wineaccess.com normal. Join my wine club. There's one more shipment this year. It is a perfect group of six wines for $150 and you will be able to use them for Thanksgiving. You can serve them at holiday gatherings. You can have friends over and enjoy food with them. They're all food-friendly wines. Wineaccess.com slash normal for the wine club. Support wine access. They help keep this podcast going as our exclusive sponsor, wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Also, don't forget new wine for normal people classes. Winefornormalpeople dot com slash classes. Join one today. $30 per person. You buy the wines locally. And you can join for a two-hour class. A ton of information. So great. The community is there. We usually hang out afterwards for a while. It's a great way to learn about wine in your pajamas. You don't have to leave your home, and as the weather's getting colder, I know that's appealing to a lot of people. Have a friend over, enjoy the wine together, enjoy learning, and please think about joining Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash wine for normal people. We are member-driven and member-supported, so the podcast can't go on without patrons. For as little as $21 a year, you can join and become part of this awesome community. Check it out today. Patreon.com slash Wine for Normal People. Now let's get back to the show.
1: The funny thing is, I'm enough of a kiwi that I also am like, hey man, screw caps. Who hasn't been stuck in a hotel and you can't get a corkscrew? <laughs> I mean, like, I got pictures of my knitting needles trying to jam corks open. A 5 euro bottle of wine
0: doesn't need a cork. Although cork is more sustainable as a closure because it can be well, reused and it biodegrades and screw cap doesn't. There is so. That. Okay, it's not consumer friendly. It's not consumer friendly. You're correct, but that's a great example,
1: right? That if we're thinking about the use case for how we're consuming this, so do I think the wholesale adoption of lighter weight bottles will ever happen? No, because our investment quality wines are never going to be under lighter weight bottles. But if everyone else, if everyone whose wine is not a collectible wine could get under lighter weight bottles.
0: Yeah, actually, I can see that. happening. Right. But could you see them moving not to glass, to something besides glass? Or is this just things that people like to talk about? Like what? Like the cardboard like the cardboard Cardboard box for stuff that can be consumed within six months or cardboard bottles or anything that if you put it on the ground or you could put it in a compost
1: i don't think that we'll ever get widespread use of cardboard bottles quite honestly i just think that that that's the nature of what we sell i'm a huge proponent of bag and box i think that it's such a good option like You want a nice rosé in your house and you don't want to have to consume 750 mils. And sunk cost is going to make you think, oh my God, if I don't drink all of it, it's going to go off. So we're all over-consuming. I think that for economics and moderation, bag and box is absolutely brilliant. What about
0: for marketing? It's so There's so much space all over the box to make something amazing, right? I don't understand why people haven't... Why hasn't someone commissioned an artist series on a box to make it like amazing? And then you put all of... stuff that you need to but there's so much possibility just to be fair that has been done the issue around sustainability and i am
1: not a sustainability expert so that's just you know like caveat um the big thing that whenever i hear discussions around sustainability and bag and box is that the liner
0: for the box
1: it's still plastic, the tap is still plastic, so we need some sort of return system. If you've got a bag and box, that you can actually ship that back, much in the same way that we see a lot of companies. I was just looking at, God, is it one of like the Kardashian beauty companies, something like that, that their they're box, you actually it can lay flat and you can send the whole box back to the company. But other things that I think can happen that a lot of people have been pushing for, Is the bottle return system, the bottle. I had a woman
0: on who talked about glass cleaning operations and things like that. And the main problem that she said was storage. Where do you bring the bottles and who can hold them in time to wash them?
1: Yeah. The other one that um, I know a lot of people have advocated for is
0: the standardized bottle. This is all part of her thing. Also, it was she's amazing and she's really trying. She's gotten a bunch of grants from California, but it's just too expensive right now. Yes, a universal bottle is essential. If if you're gonna clean yeah. them and wa- and put them back, and then you've got to have special labels that wash off and glue and things like that. But you could technically do that. I think that's a great option, frankly. I mean,
1: do you want to know what I want? I want to go back to the days of where I can take my growler bottles to the local. Right. It's you know the local tap and get it. From a marketing standpoint, it's actually very difficult in saturated markets. So you think how. It used to be that we would drink wine that was local to us, right? Because that's quick and easy and we're walking up to the village and we come in. We weren't in this era of wine exploration and everyone is discovering new things. So how do you balance the wine drinker who wants to explore the whole world of wine from their house And this need to make things transportable, sustainable, to meet all the different regulatory requirements from market to market. I think that if I had an answer to this, I would be retired now. I don't. But what I I do think that what is important about it is that every brand needs to be looking at the full measure of their sustainability actions. And that includes not just our bottle weight, but it also has to do with what are we doing in-house? I mean, we have a a thing for five Forest, and this is not just for wine, that we will literally audit people's sites for how sustainable all of your web is. But it seems like financial sustainability is equally important. If you're a good solid business and you're not making good decisions on a financial side of things, but you're doing all of these amazing environmental things, well, guess what? The environmental things are gonna end because the business is gonna end. It's becoming more apparent to every wine brand that they have to be looking holistically at the breadth of sustainability measures. And the other thing that I'm going to say is consumers need to be telling them. If it matters to you, if you're a wine for normal person listener and that bottle format, weight, packaging, whatever... If it matters to you, communicate that back to the brand and do it in a positive way. Like, don't be a dick on social media to be <laughs> like, hey, I really love your wine, but something that I notice every time it arrives, blah, 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 like yeah, lay the bottles are really
0: heavy thing. or whatever. Yeah.
1: You're using styrofoam and why is there all of this packaging? And, and because for the wine industry, we are so much uh, at the forefront of what's happening with climate change right. that our brands the wine brands need to be making the change and it affects everyone and if they have enough of their consumers reaching out to them and saying this matters to us yeah i mean i do it all the time don't you haven't you ever messaged a company and been like dude
0: why is this wrapped in so much packaging why uh, do i get yes. a box
1: that's three times the size of yes but then people it? would like, call us decision. karens
0: wouldn't they call us karens for doing that i don't know All right. Let me ask you this. You have younger people you have raised. There is a ton of hullabaloo about how young people are not drinking. There's a combination of factors here. Every article is about how the industry is in decline. There are wine gluts. No one's drinking. I have many theories about this. What are yours and what do you think about this? My
1: take on it, Wine lovers, those moms and dads who love wine, are so important to teaching two things. One, that wine is a beautiful product with infinite variety and stories
0: and history and relationships to people and moderation. And the role of wine in food is so important too. And this is one of the things that there's all these studies about Now, Europeans aren't drinking. I don't know if that's true or not true, but I do know that I don't think you're going to convince Italians not to drink.
1: What's important is not how much a young person is drinking, but if a young person does drink, do they identify as a wine drinker? What we want is that if young people are choosing to drink, we want to do a good enough job. With our product offering and our communication, that we are turning them into wine drinkers. And I'll tell this story. I'm a marketer, I love stories. I could tell all my old stories on your podcast. So I remember being, I would have been just 21 in the States, and I didn't come from a family that consumed a lot of alcohol at all. So here I am at 21, a college grad, and my best friend and I, every once in a while, would take ourselves off to the Cheesecake Factory. And I so would fancy. order a glass. Oh, I was so fancy. And so I would fancy. order a glass of Chardonnay. And it was like, Chateau Saint-Michel or Chateau Saint-Jean. It was something that honestly was like a $10 bottle at the grocery store, but I would get this glass of wine at the Cheesecake Factory. And I was a wine drinker. At that moment, I had identified that. And I carried that with me through most of my life. I look at my children. My children grew up in a house, not just because of my work, but my work also exists because my husband has a a, family history in the wine industry where we had great wine at home and they would get to taste it and they'd hear us talk about it and when they decided that they wanted to
0: drink they identified as wine drinkers the social media and the health contingent you know i'm very close with my sister we talk and text constantly and we had this very funny interaction over the last couple of days she sent me this thing we both love the gym right or go exercise. I sent her something and I said, how is it possible that all these articles are coming out saying that exercise has nothing to do with how fit you are or whether or not you can lose weight? When, if you look at people who go exercise on a regular basis, tend not to be overweight. They tend to be in better shape. They tend to live these kind of healthier lifestyles. Well, if you go online right now and Google you will see that there are a ton of articles starting in like 2015 or maybe even earlier than that that say exercise has nothing to do with losing well, I mean, weight. what
1: they're saying, what they're saying is that you can't exercise away a bad diet.
0: Right. Correct. And right. And that's... then right, so then then today there was another thing that said if you exercise in the morning and you're a woman, yeah, you I've will lose more weight. So this constant narrative back and forth Drinking wine is great for you. Drinking wine is terrible for you. Canada now says you can't have more than two glasses a week. No amount of alcohol is safe for you. So There's for the, woman, these, ki- these kids I, are growing up in an environment where I call them kids, but I mean, even the millennials, where they are constantly being bombarded with conflicting information. And I think that it that's is not why incredibly- some of it is that, is this scaremongering of control. I think there's certainly a concern
1: around health, but I think that a lot of it is also that when you and I were 20 years of age and doing dumb things, the internet didn't exist. Right. There was nobody who was gonna take a picture of me that was gonna live on social media for the rest. Of- so what I notice is that my children are far more private in the things that they do. So they're much more likely to drink alcohol with a very closed, you know, small group of friends than they are at what you and I would do, which was like <laughs> big frat parties We were and not peggers. drinking wine
0: then. We were not drinking wine. Anyway,
1: but I think that more importantly, there's some other things going on there that we're not talking about. Women. I think that, that the wine industry as a whole is uncertain what we do with women drinkers right now for a couple reasons. Statistics are showing that women drinking, women binge drinking, women over-drinking has skyrocketed since the pandemic. If I go into the data, the people who are making the buying decisions, all women they're women. So things like menopause changes a woman's relationship with alcohol. You can't drink as much. We literally cannot drink the way that we used to and the disparity between us and any males who we with, who are drinking, becomes that much larger. Alcohol has no interest in having that particular discussion. That's an interesting challenge. People who are like literally the purse strings. Every wine brand is like, oh, we love our boomers. Except they're, you know, many they're of them They're aging out. They're age- aging out. They're aging out where they've got sellers that they're like, I'll never be able to drink all the wine that I have. And wine brands are saying, oh my God, how do I get them to buy more? Instead of being like... We've had a great run with them. And how do we teach them to be the advocate for the next generation? And again, this comes back to what I was saying in the beginning. I have one client that we went through a big customer persona workshop on. And what we found was that their audience was a family. It was basically one kind of husband with one kind of wife and the one kind of grown child. Think about that. If you look at the people who are your listeners or the people who are our friends, we do represent these little bubbles of wine lovers and if we as parents can actually just drive that conversation it's so much better than having some kind of regional body or moderated body or you know wine brand trying to get
0: people to buy our wine i agree with that well what do you think about no and low alcohol wines i think it's fabulous if we can make it taste right Right. I think the I mean,
1: possibility of it is fabulous. It's something we all need to be working on as an industry. If we can find a tasty, no or low alk wine,
0: that's going so so to be I actually have to say, industry. I do not believe no alcohol wine is actually wine anymore. It's a grape juice at that point. But I think that lower alcohol wines are available actually all over from cooler climates.
1: If you can give me something that tastes like a wine that I like and it's got no alcohol in it, then everything's not else possible is kind of a though. Semantic...
0: I know that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, but... I mean that the balance is part of the structure of wine is alcohol, which is why I definitely believe in lower alcohol wines, but yeah. I don't believe in no alcohol. I don't, I, and I actually don't think that they're they're wines. I don't know. And I sort. Then... Let me tell you this. I sort of think that this the no alcohol craze is like Zima. I, think I love
1: that you referenced Zima. I, 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 think I want Zima. your audience, people who know what you're talking about, raise their hand because that is so, so funny. We got Zima, plenty of Gen
0: Xers here right. who know what Zima is. Um, Zima, when okay, Spen so if you don't, kind of don't know what Zima and James is, category. right, Bartles and James at least tasted good. Zima was disgusting and we all drank it anyway. Zima was this brand new, I don't even know what it was, malt Zima liquor. Zima was proto white claw. Right. It yeah. was disgusting. And we it drank it, and it was one of these things that we thought we should be drinking. I have no idea why. It was a craze. I do think that no alcohol wine is going to be like that. I think low alcohol wine already exists. Right.
1: right. So let's let's look at that. Let's say that as an industry, for whatever reason, we decide we know that this isn't going to happen, and there's no possibility for a tasty, no, or significantly low alcohol wine. Right. You know what we have? we have amazing chemists that's it if you think about a winemaker and you think about the skill that it takes to make wine awesome what else can you make what can you make that is a mixer what can you make that's a shrub what can right. you make a, that's a wine kombucha? derived product what can we what can we make that is a wine derived product that means that when a pregnant woman who loves wine walks into our tasting room, we can still greet her. That when grandpa, whose doctor has said, I'm sorry, you really need to stop drinking. When someone who's a recovering alcoholic, but actually trying to still... Be a part of the world. But they wine is very social, something. right?
0: Yes, wine yes, is but very we've got to admit we do have to admit that that is different from wine because it may be chemistry, but wine is largely a product of nature. But if we're thinking about wine in the truest sense, wine that's eight thousand years old, we are thinking about wine that has alcohol in it. There can be a submarket for all of this other stuff, but the fact that people. And this is what we keep doing in wine over and over again. Just put all your eggs right. in this one basket and say, hey, Hold on. you know, there's Hold a short term thinking of we're going to just say, hey, you know what? This is what we're doing. We're going to go all in on this. It doesn't make sense. If we Please. go back to
1: what matters to consumers versus what matters to us and how consumers talk and how hard education can be, I feel like the discussion, the the argument that you and I are having right now is a semantic argument. As trade, we don't want to call it wine because it's not representative of the things that make wine. But for a consumer who identifies as a wine drinker, the minute that we don't call something no out but is made according to the same principles, which I get that that's the big, big caveat there. The minute that we give it different language, are we making it harder for that wine lover to have an alternative.
0: It's a good so question. What, and I don't yeah. know because another another issue is the confusion issue of you wind up buying one of these products by mistake because it's in the wine aisle and you like the label and you it's not very clearly labeled that it's no or low alcohol and that's not what you wanted. I agree with that. Look there are problems with overconsumption. But when we look at the population, one of the other things is that it is a fairly small percentage of people who have problems with overconsumption of alcohol. It is overrepresented in terms of, yes, it's a horrible tragedy. It is something that's very bad. But about 90% of people are not alcoholics.
1: I don't know any of the stats on
0: that. So I can neither confirm I, or I've deny looked it up. those statistics. I have actually looked it up. It's between 10, between I think 8 and 10% of at least the U.S. population are considered to be alcoholics. Let's add tack on a couple percentage points for people who aren't accounted for. But usually these statistics are pretty good because they've been tracked for a really long time. So let's say even 15 percent, that means 85 percent of the population are moderate drinkers or don't drink at all in the United States, which is the fourth most populated country. I know other markets are very important. I'm not saying they're not, but it is a huge market. One of the things that I feel about all of this is that we say the sky is falling. We say people aren't drinking. There's a lot of things going on in our society, in the world right now. And it's incredible short-term thinking because wine has taken hits and come back and bounced back. And all of this stuff over the course of time... The core group, every single person, I am i am going to say this without a doubt, every single person listening to the show right now who is a regular listener of this show is committed to wine, is interested in wine. You don't turn on we love a you wine... Guys. i And I, you know I love you. Yeah. You do not turn on a wine podcast week after week. You don't send me emails. You don't communicate with me. You don't take my classes. You don't do all of this stuff if you're not truly committed to wine. And I have to say that I do not worry when I see all of this stuff because I oh, think I that it's, it's I a, it's a natural, around. right? Like, but, but you so, see all of this. I mean, even friends of ours are writing about all of this stuff. Like, Oh my gosh, it's the end. It's the well, yeah. it's-
1: headlines and clickbait matter. Look, I'm not sitting around worried about my future because I think that wine is dying. In fact, we're busier than we've ever been. I think that we have hit a point where, Brands that aren't doing things right are possibly struggling. I don't know that those brands coming up with a no or low alcohol wine is the thing that's going to solve their problem.
0: It's really important to look at all of the trends and all of the clickbait and to understand that the things that are actually falling out, in my opinion, are the lower tier brands and people that aren't making good wine. And it goes back to exactly what you said to your kids. I think our generation has said to our children, don't drink crap. If you're going to drink, drink in moderation and drink better. And that is going to lead to less drinking but more thoughtful drinking. And in the end, it's going to reward, hopefully, I mean, not everybody's going to win out of this, but it will reward producers, regions, places, people, who are making more thoughtful products. Well, is it going to be as big as it, is, as it is right now? It will never be. We've, we've experienced 20 years of growth. Every industry hits a level of maturity where things flatten out. It is the nature of economics. No one can look at any industry and say that you're going to continue to grow forever and ever. It does not happen that way. And wine is no different in that way. We have trained a legion of wine drinkers. And yet, we now are so disappointed because a bunch of those people are falling off. But they are teaching their children different things. Don't drink crap wine. Don't be like Elizabeth and Polly and drink back woodchuck the day, cider out of my a brown paper bag. Natty um, Light out of the out of the keg. Going
1: back to brands and consumers, and this will apply to anyone who's self employed and who's in your audience. It's not just wine brands. If A business is trying to grow based upon general knowledge that they're getting through news sources. That's important for understanding the macro environment. But we should not be making decisions about our customers based upon aggregated industry data. We should be making decisions about our customers based on our data. And so that's it is that we right now we've got in a lot of spaces, we've got these like sweeping statistics about things that are changing and, and it, it doesn't always apply. So like, just do, do your own research and know your own brand. Sorry. I just had, I had to get on the marketing yeah. high horse for a minute.
0: It's important that when it is your brand that you feel is slipping, it may not be because of macro trends. It may be because of something you're doing or not doing. I yeah, mean, there's also sad, you, you can't like, blame it. You can't right. blame it on, I on hear, big data. I hear a lot of that. Well, the industry's doing so badly. So I we're, we're tanking and it's like, all right. My last question to you, take out your crystal ball. What do you say going on in the wine industry? Anything changing or pretty much steady state for the next little bit here? I think that
1: every year the wine industry is going to complain that young people aren't buying wine. And I think every year there's going to be another person who turns 40 who has a mortgage who discovers that they suddenly have the space and the money to really love wine. Right. Right. Le plus ça change. that's going to be exactly the same forever. I do think that we are seeing much more bifurcation in tiers of wine. So there's been a lot of merger and acquisition activity in the past three years. We are seeing an unfortunate level of consolidation of wine brands in the hands of large ownership. I think that that is unfortunate. I am hoping that through social media, through e-commerce, through something that right now is still quite nascent for many wine brands, that wine brands will learn to talk to their people, to talk to not every wine drinker, to stop thinking that they have to onboard every wine drinker to their brand, but that they will find their people... I'm actually going to give an example of this. Um, there's a brand that I love. I'm so sorry, Alex and Hannah, that I always pronounce your your name wrong. Um, so the brand is S. I'm going to spell it S A O okay. R S A dot Co. Nz. I think that it's that kind of brand where they're hip and the Mohawk and the tats and the whole thing, but they also are excellent winemakers. I think we're going to move out of this belief that if you're young and groovy and hip, you're also making like weird natural wines. No, identity is going to age with our people. They're going to be the 40, 50 year olds who are still absolutely groovy and still love everything that they're doing. And they're still forward thinking because that is a part of the nature of the generation. They're not going to lose that. And with that, Identification of what our personality is and who our audience is, we're going to see these brands that are unique and beautiful and independent
0: who are going to succeed. The consolidation of the industry is bad, but it's also good because I think that real wine lovers are going to move away from that and they are going to be looking for all of these more independent brands, which is going to be really great for the small guys. For a long time, the independent
1: brands sat kind of in the same personality band as a lot of the brands that we didn't know were industrial brands. But what we're getting now with this next generation of winemakers is we're getting what I would describe as like fiercely independent, radically independent brands. They want to make decisions that support their people, that support their children coming up, that make wine the way they wanna make because their generation has been given permission to do that. I mean, I did an interview couple years ago maybe it was yeah it was a couple years ago with a young woman who I think she was 25 when she opened a wine bar and the wine bar is award-winning in New Zealand it's one of the top 50 every year and um, I can give you a link if you want it for me it was a masterclass on how on how the wine world is is changing because she's so transparent she's so honest she's so respectful and, and she takes such good care of her people and the Wines are amazing. She's got $600 bottles of wine on her list. She's got $15 tap wines. Like there's nothing, uh, there's nothing in what she's doing that supports all of this rhetoric about young people not drinking wine. It's just that young people maybe aren't drinking cheap wine, or maybe they're not drinking boring wine, or maybe they're not drinking your wine. Right. But it's not that they're not a
0: part of our industry, and I want to see them come up. I really hope that happens, too. You can find Polly on fiveforest.com. You can find her new YouTube series, When Will It Launch, Polly?, so it's going to launch on the
1: 15th of October with a recap of LuxPack, which is the world's largest luxury packaging conference in Monaco, Ooh. but um, it's a great place to go. It's a great place to go and see like interesting new things that are coming down
0: the pike. Well, so it, it may be more on- sustainable, October. interesting packages, right? You never know. Every
1: year. That's yep. it. Every yep. year we, we see more and more interesting sustainability stuff. So I'm super pumped to go to that. The YouTube series you can find at the YouTube channel Five Forest and it's under a playlist called Head Training.
0: Make sure that you subscribe to that. Polly, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your insights. This was awesome.
1: Can I tell a story before we close? All right, I go want ahead. To tell your audience why I'm friends with Elizabeth and why the audience matters. Go ahead. So, some years ago, you and I were at a conference together. I get a message from my husband, who has been a wine for normal people listener forever. I'm in Italy, he's in New Zealand. He says to me, oh, Elizabeth Schneider is at the conference. Meet Elizabeth Schneider or don't come home. That was what <laughs> I was told. And that was how I met you because one of your audience members happened to be my husband. And I think that those I love those stories. And maybe that's why we're friends and not just like work friends. So way to go for your amazing audience. They're the reason that I have you as a good friend.
0: Please thank your lovely husband for forcing you into meeting me. We love you Mushley. And I love your wonderful audience. I love my wonderful audience, too. Luckiest person in wine, for sure. Greatest audience ever. BuyForest.com. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.